The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. As we release this episode here at the Museum of Flight, we are getting ready to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the first flight of the Boeing 747. We just happen to have that first 747 airplane in our collection, and we're excited to take this opportunity to share some stories about the Queen of the Skies. In this episode, we're dipping into the oral history collection again that we have at the Museum of Flight with a chat with Jerry Coy, who is a docent here at the museum. Jerry piloted planes for 40 years, including 330 combat missions over Vietnam for the Air Force, where he earned a silver star for assisting in rescuing Green Berets, which is its own fantastic story that we shall perhaps revisit another day. Today, however, Jerry talks at length about his commercial career following the Air Force, where he flew 747s, first carrying cargo and then carrying passengers. And now I will turn it over to Jerry and his interviewer, Ted Leiberger, also a docent here at the museum, for a discussion about bizarre airports, autopiloting in the 747, and what you do when you're flying one of the biggest planes in the world and the engine fails. You know, that's the way airlines work. It's all on seniority. When the positions came open on the 747, I immediately bid that. And I bid that because I was commuting from Seattle to go to work. Mm. And I could be based in Seattle on the 747. And uh, for obvious reasons, I bid that right away. Additionally, your pay is based on uh, the lift of the aircraft that you flew. The bigger the airplane, the higher the pay was for each of the positions. Hmm. And so it was also an increase in pay. And the most important thing to me was the fact that you could do it all in one, uh, one period of time. There weren't multiple uh, days of work with days off in between. You would normally go out for 12 or 13 days and come home for the rest of the month. And you could frequently string together a whole month off before you had to go back for another 12 or 13 days. I see. So what did it take to get into the 747? You bid on it, they let you know whether you had the job or not, then you went to the simulator. What, well, how was the transition? The transition was exactly like it was for the 747. There was ground school first, followed by 12 simulators, then a line check on the flight line, and each of the positions worked exactly the same way. Even whenever you upgraded to another seat position, you went back to ground school again and pretty much got the same thing you got for the original position. It's all based on the idea that you might have come from a different airplane type before you got into that next seat. When you were in the 747, did it have the three-man cockpit or is it the two-man cockpit? All of our airplanes at Northwest, uh, until they got the 400, were three-man cockpits and I never flew the 400, so I was always on the three-person cockpit. And you were always the first officer, or had you been? I had been the second officer originally, and then upgraded uh, after six years to the first officer. So usually the, the second officer, although he's working the systems of the airplane, is a potential flying officer. 
Oh, absolutely. They sure. always are. Okay. Sure. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. And so what was the mission for most of the 747s? You know, the flying? 747 was designed for long haul. The exception was when they were repositioning an airplane, we might fly from Seattle back to Minneapolis just to set the airplane back in Minneapolis mm -hmm. for the next overseas flight. But at the time, uh, depending on the base uh, that you flew from, uh, out of Seattle, everything went west. So we would uh, go to Tokyo almost all the time. We also had non-stops to Seoul and uh, Taipei. When were you time. flying the 747? What, what, was what the years? Year, what year, what's the year span you were flying the 747? Uh, 19 of my 20 years, if that's what you mean. You mean year numbers? Yeah, was it 1990 uh, to 2000? Uh, 1990 to 2008. That's yeah. 19 years. Uh, yeah. So you flew from, and you hauled cargo most of the time. Uh, 12 of my years on the airplane, I was based in Anchorage, and that is the cargo hub. So all of the airplanes in and out of Anchorage were freight 747s. Now, in terms of the way the airplane flew or the setup, it was identical. The cockpit is identical to the passenger model. In your bio, you said that the plane was could be autopiloted to a certain degree, but you had to watch it, otherwise it's possible to stall. Well, uh, there were three inertial navigation sets on board the airplane, and that's critical for overseas flying because you had to have two operational inertial navigation sets before you started across the Pacific or the Atlantic. You define an INS system, inertial navigation, a quick definition for us. Inertial navigation system is a, uh, a box with three gyros, and these gyros sense G-forces. So every acceleration in any direction, a bank or a deceleration, is registered. That's mm -hmm. how sensitive the gyroscopes are in each of these sets. You put in an inertia, initial position, and you get that out of your book, your approach plates, and it tells you what your position on the airport is. You put in that latitude and longitude. The uh, gyros spin up and it will give you a green light when it's ready to navigate. You simply put those in navigate. Mm -hmm. And you can also put in uh, waypoints. You put in uh, other uh, lat longs, latitudes and longitudes, and that will be your flight plan along the way. And those were listed right on the flight plan that we got. Now the flight plans at an airline are computer generated. As opposed to when I was in the military, I had to write all of that myself. I had to make my own flight plan. You said that uh, in, in all your time flying, you lost only a, twice you had an engine failure. Can you tell us about those? Uh, the engine failures, uh, the first one occurred going through about 18,000 feet, leaving Chicago for Tokyo. Uh, that was one of those times when we were really heavy. And it was a number four, far outboard engine. so and we're at climb power, that's not maximum power, but that's very high, uh, uh, high RPM mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the performance of the aircraft. And number four failed and it actually seized. So I guess it had lost the oil pressure of some sort because the engine seized up and made a loud noise when the engine seized, of course, and the airplane really yawed severely dragged. Into, into that engine because the engines on the left side were still at high performance, and so they were wanted to turn into the to the dead engine. We simply powered back, leveled off, declared an emergency, dumped fuel, and we were well above the minimum altitude for dumping fuel, and returned to Chicago on three engines. It was really, to be perfectly honest, it was a non-event. 
the other time uh, was a little uh, more uh, dangerous in terms of the performance. We were taken off out of San Francisco going to Tokyo and we lost a number four engine. And uh, I think this had a lot to do with the fact that we were cleared off after a triple seven and the guy had not even uh, lifted off yet and the San Francisco tower cleared us for takeoff. Mm. We probably should have just taken our own delay because there's a minimum amount of time you're supposed to take behind uh, heavies. Two minutes? Beg your pardon? Two minutes? Yes, two minutes. But at any rate, uh, so we went ahead and launched as we were directed, you know, clear for takeoff. So we put the power up and right at rotation, number four rolled back on us and went basically stalled and flamed out. And we just basically have just, the nose just in the air, it's, it's not a time to abort. So basically you just maintain takeoff power and uh, the airplane flew off well. Uh, uh, there had been an episode within a year prior to this where a United flight a 400 had taken off and had a similar problem and the person flying it had almost crashed the airplane because they didn't put in enough rudder and moderate their power enough. So we were, we were very aware of this and uh, the captain was flying at this time. The procedure was that the captain, if there's an emergency and the captain's flying, he turns it over to the first officer and then the captain and the second officer uh, basically follow the procedures, the checklist procedures. So as soon as the airplane is cleaned up, he gives it to me. I apply the appropriate uh, rudder and to fly the airplane up to 20,000 feet where we dump fuel in a holding pattern and then come mm -hmm. back and land. Once again, the recovery uh, on three engines with this big airplane was So was cockpit very coordination was really a big thing then, isn't it? Well, absolutely. And uh, that means that you have to rely on each other and you have to trust each other just like it is in fighter aircraft. Hmm. Absolutely true. So you're well yeah. suited to that then. I had no trouble whatsoever transitioning in, in the regard of who's the boss, because mm -hmm. even as a lieutenant colonel, if I had a lieutenant as my flight lead, he was the boss of that flight. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had learned uh, early on that to acquiesce and basically just follow instruction at a time like that, that doesn't mean that I wouldn't speak up if I saw something that was not being done correctly, because I frequently did. Going into Tokyo, that is the, at the time, and for all I know, still is, the busiest big airplane airport in the world. And by that, I mean a small airplane going into Tokyo was a 777. Mm. Uh, now it would be a 767 would be the smallest airplane to ever go into Narita. Now, there's a downtown airport, which the smaller airplanes could service and uh, they have expanded the size of that. So I understand there are now large airplanes, 747s that operate in and out of Haneda, the downtown airport. Narita is still very busy and has, uh, has two runways. At the time, they had one long runway and one short runway. And in essence, what that meant was uh, it was a single runway operation in terms mm. of the big airplanes. I see. And that meant that uh, if, uh, if there was a problem with an airplane on the runway, you had to be prepared to divert because there were no other options. There was, you couldn't just land on the other runway. Mm -hmm. I see what you mean. And so we always had that in the back of our minds every time we made an approach into there. What about Hong Kong? That's always been you know, interesting airport to land in. You know, uh, they have a new airport that they had opened long before I actually left the airline. And it's just like any other major airport. 
straight ends are the rule of the day. But early on, uh, my first probably eight years at the airline, we used the downtown airport at Hong Kong. And it's, it sets up what I refer to as a curvilinear approach. You start the approach, and this is on a guide. You, so it's part of the approach as you're being guided on your instruments. But in visual conditions, you find you're actually flying toward a mountain. Hmm. And there's a big checkerboard mounted on the side of this mountain. And you see that, and you get within about a mile and a half of that, and you do a start a fairly hard right-hand turn, and you start a descent from this point from 2,000 feet, and you stay in a curve all the way to touchdown. And you roll out on short final and touchdown at, at, at the airport. So I thought it was kind of a fun airport to go into. A lot of the guys thought, thought it was a little too demanding. Now, I do remember one approach in there. I was not flying the airplane, but uh, we had severe weather. We were truly landing in a thunderstorm. And the airplane is getting beat up real badly. And uh, so the captain and I are having a discussion, should we divert? And I said, uh, I would be okay with me if you want to divert. And he says, oh, let's, let's try one time to try to get it down, and then we'll go somewhere else if we have to. I'm here to tell you, we touched down in, in the, there was lots of standing water on the runway. Now, big airplanes like this have reverse thrust, so we immediately went to reverse thrust to slow the airplane down, even though there wasn't much braking to be had because of the standing water on the runway. And the wind is blowing so hard, we literally start sliding across the runway. <laughs> and uh, to the captain's credit, he started using differential uh, reverse thrust to keep the airplane aligned. And I thought, in fact, I, we cleared the runway and I reached over and shook his hand. I said, well done. That was really smooth the way you handled it. Thank you for joining me today on The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. If you're listening to this episode when it comes out and you are in the Seattle area, come on down this coming weekend, February 9th and 10th, 2019, for some festivities surrounding the 747 50th anniversary. You can get links to information about the anniversary or how to visit the 747 year-round in this episode's show notes at our website, museumofflight.org podcast. The Oral History Program is made possible by the generous support of Michael and Mary Kay Holman. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date with our episodes and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcast at museumofflight.org. And until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. Music